1: Welcome
2: to the Real Change series on the Meta Hour with Sharon Salzberg. Inspired by Sharon's newest book, Real Change, this series features conversations with activists, artists, and teachers, all discussing the intersection of meditation and social action. To learn more, visit realchangebook.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm speaking today with David Desteno for the Real Change podcast series. David is a professor of psychology at Northeastern University, where he directs the Social Emotions Group. At the broadest level, his work examines the mechanisms of the mind that shape vice and virtue, studying hypocrisy and compassion, pride and punishment, cheating and trust, his work continually reveals that human moral behavior is much more variable than most would predict. David is a fellow of the Association for Psychological Science and the American Psychological Association, for which he served as editor-in-chief of the journal Emotion. His work has been repeatedly funded by the National Science Foundation, and he is the author of several books, Emotional Success, The Truth About Trust, and the co-author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Out of Character. David has been regularly featured in the media, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, CBS Sunday Morning, NPR's Radio Lab, and On Point, and USA Today. I think David has become one of the scientists I, I refer to, I quote, most frequently in my writing. And I'm so delighted to welcome you today to the Meta Hour, David. Hi, Sharon. Thank you so much for having me on. It's really, uh, it is a great delight. We're both recording remotely from our respective quarantine homes, still in the midst of the pandemic. I'm in Barrie, Massachusetts, and you are in the Commonwealth as well, right? I
0: am. I'm in Canton,
2: Massachusetts. Well, here we are. I mean, this recording is part of a larger series of conversations on the Meta Hour, uh, centered around the themes of my book, Real Change, and I've long asked myself what role mindfulness and loving kindness might have in impacting the world, and and the book itself and the podcast series are an exploration of that question and speaking to a whole variety of, of different people, um, and I really am just so happy for the chance to talk to you. And uh, I want to tell you at some point how I present uh, one of your studies and, and the twist that I put upon it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to begin with, can you um, tell us a little bit about how you came to your path, how um, this emphasis on emotions uh, really arose for you? Sure. When I was uh, an undergrad, I was, we're going way
0: back, <laughs> when I was an undergrad, I was deciding between whether I wanted to be a psychology major or a religious studies major. And I, I opted for psychology because I felt like, you know, I could use science and find some answers rather than debate things. And so I, I went off to graduate school and uh, I studied at Yale and I, I worked with Peter Salovey, was the creator of, of the idea of emotional intelligence. And so through the years, a lot of my research focused on the idea that emotions are a lens through which we view the world, and, and they're there to shape our decisions. Sometimes they do it for the better, sometimes they don't, and I was interested in trying to tease those two apart. And so for many years in my lab, we studied, as, as your, your kind and generous intro suggested, lots of different moral behaviors, hypocrisy, cheating, trust, prejudice, et cetera with the idea being how do our emotions color our, our views and our behaviors. Uh, but over time, what we really began to focus on are, are not the ways that, that emotions lead us down the wrong path, but the ways that it could actually help enhance well-being and and compassion and kindness and generosity in the world. And so we have spent many, many years looking at that and, and the reason I mentioned at the beginning why I was trying to decide between being a, a religious studies major and a psychologist is in some ways I, I feel like I've come full circle. I'm, I'm, I'm not a theologian in any sense, uh, but what I've come to realize is that a lot of the things that, that I study and how emotions work um, make sense from kind of a, a toolbox of, of religion viewpoint. That is, there are a lot of practices that religions use and spiritual spirituality uses one being, the practice of, of metta and meditation, that actually leverage a lot of these mechanisms in important ways. And so what I'm trying to do now is to understand how emotions like compassion and gratitude uh, can foster people's resilience and, and, and reduce inequality and, and discrimination in the world, and how we can leverage even some of those practices that religions have used to, to foster those uh, in people, um, to everyone's uh, betterment, I hope.
2: Well, that's really fantastic. I mean, I feel like uh, in this time of like incredible disruption and um, chaos and, and difficulty, uh, there's also something resilient about many people. Mm-hmm. And uh, to understand that more and to be able to nurture that, I think is... Is an enormous thing because a lot of the qualities you mention, uh, like gratitude, for example, um, are also uh, denigrated. Sometimes, you know, I, I follow you on Twitter, mm-hmm. and uh, I I noticed uh, you had tweeted this was a, a little while ago something about a study on gratitude, um, which I found fascinating because uh, you know I teach so much loving kindness meditation and compassion meditation, and I face this. Uh, my book, Loving Kindness, which was my first book, came out 25 years ago, mm-hmm. and I was teaching 10 years before then that particular method. And so I've heard a lot, oh, those are the kinds of practices that make you complacent, or gratitude mm-hmm. in particular is the kind of thing that makes you satisfied with crumbs thrown your way, you know, yeah. and you don't ever stand up for yourself. So I wonder if you could, uh, to begin with, talk a little bit about gratitude.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, that is something that I always worried about for the longest time. Um, you know we, know, we know gratitude does a lot for people. Uh, it, it strengthens your relationships. And we'll talk about this more. I'm sure it makes you more ethical. Um, but it, people would say, well, but are you making people basically suckers, right? Are you making yeah. people um, doormats uh, or, you know, happy with crumbs? And what um, I say to people that, it, well, there are two things. One I say is, you know, every emotion we have exists for the future not for the past. It 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 doesn't make sense for the brain to waste its metabolic energy having you feel stuff if you can't change anything about it. And I think this is one of right the wisdom points of 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 Buddhism as well. It's like why keep thinking about things and causing yourself pain when they're in the past and you can't undo them. So gratitude the reason we have it is is it's about the future, not about the past, right? The reason I feel gratitude and I I feel grateful to you, Sharon, for having me on your podcast. The reason we feel gratitude is because it motivates us to then repay those favors in the future to the person who helped us, our benefactor, or or to pay it forward to other people. And when people, when people ask me, Dave, I want to be a success. Should I, should I be a nice person or should I be, you know, uh, a jerk right be be driving myself hard, be assertive, be selfish, and i say well what 's your time frame? Mm-hmm. because if you look at the evolutionary data, people who are kind of very selfish, very hard edged very focused only on their own needs in the short run, you can get ahead by doing that. Um, all the evolutionary models show that. But over time, it's individuals who are fair and kind and generous, show compassion, show gratitude, who in the end win because they continue to treat people fairly and people want to continue working with them, cooperating mm-hmm. with them, following them if they have the chance, if they're in a leadership role. And over time, that is what builds your success. And it builds it both in terms of what David Brooks would call your resume virtues, right? That is, it it makes you more patient, more willing to sacrifice and persevere, but it also fosters your eulogy virtues, things like kindness and generosity, things you want to be remembered for. And in the end, it's it's melding those two things that leads people to success. And if you look at the evolutionary data, it's there as well. People who are selfish and self-focused in the long run do not do well unless they're in an artificial position of power
2: so interesting and, and uh, relieving, you know, yeah. uh, as a response to um, people who really feel gratitude as one example would be uh, a big mistake to try to cultivate. And something you just said actually fascinated me as well. Um, like one of the features of the Buddhist psychology is this excruciating parsing of words and terminology mm. so that you can tell the fine differences between this and that. And uh, there's a distinction that's sometimes made uh, within that framework between what we might call remorse and what they would call guilt, Mm -hmm. whereas remorse is like a positive thing to generate because as painful as it is, that recognition of having broken the harmony or said something really wrong or hurt somebody in some Mm -hmm. way, as painful as it is to recollect that, we also have an ability not to kind of over-identify with that and not to feel stuck there and to have the energy to move on with some kind of determination to live differently. Mm -hmm. Whereas guilt is like a lacerating self-hatred where we just stay there. Like I am only the person who said that stupid thing and uh, there's no sense Mm -hmm. of possibility or potential for change and we just go over it and over it and over it and it's, it's debilitating. Yeah. So it's not considered that positive. It actually drains us of energy.
0: Um, we can't move on. Yeah, you know, the, this whole idea of emotional intelligence has been big in in not only the psychological literature, but, you know, the educational literature, the corporate training literature for years. And what people tend to forget is they focus on two aspects of it, which is, can I can I read other people's emotions to understand what they're feeling? And the second is, can I control and calm my own, right? So little Johnny doesn't get to be disruptive in class. But there's a third part that I think is the most important part, which you hear very infrequently talked about. And that is, can you use your own emotions as tools? And I think you can. And a lot of what my work is focused on is let's, if we think about, as you're saying, emotions in a certain way, we can change what we're feeling. We can curate our own states. and And in doing that, use them to achieve goals that we believe are positive ones for ourselves. And so I think, you know, a lot of what, especially, I mean, Buddhism has a a tremendous psychology over, (laughs) over millennia, um, you know, not, not based on scientific experiments, but based on deep insight that in some ways tracks a lot of what we're finding, we're finding now. And so I think the the attention to that parsing uh, and to using emotions in a wise and appropriate manner can be a huge benefit to people. And that's part of what I'm trying to do from from my scientific bench uh, of it.
2: So speaking of emotional intelligence, mm. I should first say Dan Goldman, who popularized the notion, uh, mm-hmm. brought me to my first meditation retreat in India in 1970. Mm-hmm. Um, I met him uh, when I was in India looking for a teacher, looking for a, a, a method, really, more than a teacher. And uh he he was speaking at this yoga conference I was at and um the yoga conference in general was a completely dismal affair where the low point were these yogis and swamis standing up on the stage pushing and shoving against each other to try to be the first to grab the mic <laughs> and speak and yeah. uh and there was Dan giving a paper for some reason. He was still um a graduate student at the time. Hmm. And he said at the end of his talk that he was on his way to this town called Borgaya, which, um, where there was going to be this intensive 10-day kind of immersion retreat. And, and I thought, oh, that's just what I've been looking for. And so I went. So hmm. uh, And part of – I'm going to ask you your opinion about the marshmallow test, mm-hmm. which is part of what's in the book, because um, I've wondered how much kind of the uh, – contextual nature of someone, a little kid's response would be like if you're in a home with poverty, you know, for yeah. example, and, uh, and you can explain what the marshmallow test is, but it's so unlikely. It's not in your experience that that second marshmallow is going to come, mm-hmm. you know, or um, there's deprivation of some kind. Wouldn't that influence the, the child's response? It's not just a matter of yeah. uh, kind of self-discipline.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's exactly right. Let me, since you suggested I do this, let me step back and and do and explain the marshmallow test um, for people who might not be aware of it. Um, It was designed by psychologist Walter Mischel, and he was interested in studying self-control in kids, with the idea being that if you have self-control, right, you're able to resist temptations for immediate gratification, and thereby you're, you know, willing to study more and to, and to, you know, uh, be more honest instead of selfish and et cetera. And so the way the test would work very simple form is, um, he would put a marshmallow down or another piece of candy in front of a young child and say, um, you can have this now I've got to go do something. Um, but if you wait till I get back, you can have two. And what this is, is a, is a child friendly version of a dilemma. We all face that economists call intertemporal choice, which is, uh, you can have, a. a A reward now but if you wait it will be it will be bigger i I tend to you know talk about this in terms of aesop's ant and grasshopper right the grasshopper wild away the summer having a good time and dancing while the ant went and toiled in the (laughs) fields. but when when winter came the ant had a bigger benefit of of food and the grasshopper didn't and starved um and what we found michelle and lots of other people uh, we as psychologists is that uh People who have better self-control, who pass the marshmallow test, um, do better academically. They do better in finances. They have less credit card debt, less addiction, all the things you would think self-control is tied to. But you raise a real interesting point, and it's one that we're reconsidering now and finding new data on. If you live in an environment where you've learned or or come to expect that effort or self-control isn't going to lead to anything, that is... If you don't take the benefit when you have it, then you're basically going to lose out because it's not going to come your way again. Or you can study all you want, but it's not going to lead to anything because you're coming from an environment where there's just uh, 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 discrimination or inequality that makes it very difficult for you to succeed. I mean, you can even look at the zip code data in, in New York to look at you know, kids living blocks apart have dramatically different outcomes. Then it is kind of irrational for you to wait uh and so one can make an argument that you know kids from these environments who don't wait it's not that they don't have the capacity for self-control it's that they have no belief that it's going to be that's going to lead to anything better and so for them it is it is rational not to wait and you know we can we can debate that all you want but but it clearly offers a different take on the marshmallow test
2: it's so interesting because um does it offer a different take on science and research in the sense that, um, uh, the findings maybe could, uh, well be contextualized in some way.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I I mean, a lot of, uh, so there's been a move, a lot of studies that we do are done with college age populations because, you know, that's who we have easiest access to. And that's been criticized by a lot of people, both for the limits uh, in, in terms of cultural aspects, a lot of the things that we used to be called the fundamental bias of this or the fundamental bias of that are not called that anymore because they don't replicate in different cultures. And, you know, Michelle's initial work, right, was done uh, at with with kids from the Stanford preschool, right? And so that's a very different economic milieu than you might find in other places. And so, yeah, and Joe Heinrich at, at Harvard has been making this argument that a lot of psychology is done in what he calls weird People where weird is an acronym for uh, I forget wealthy something something I can't remember the acronym but it's exactly that and so a lot of things are are contextualized and that makes perfect sense you know I mean we're all born with kind of the same mind but that mind is going to be tuned to its environment to get the most optimal outcomes and the brain is very malleable and. And so it it tunes itself um, to what the expectations and likelihoods are in its environment. So I think that's something that we're aware of as a field and we're struggling with. And I think we're making headway on it. But I think what you'll see is over a lot of time, these types of biases or outcomes that we thought were fundamental to the human condition may be more and more contextualized. But you said you had a a twist on this. So what was your
2: twist? Oh, yes. Well, no, I have a twist on your study. Uh Oh, yeah. Yeah, but uh, now I'm thinking, what is weird? I've heard that before, but I can't. Yeah, remember. I have
0: to go. I have to go look for the, what the acronym <laughs> is. I can't remember. I know W <laughs> is Western,
2: but I forget the rest. Yeah, E is probably educated. Yeah. And, uh, but I, I was working with a group once of um, international humanitarian aid workers, and they really came from all over the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were they were holding some study as kind of sacrosanct, and then one of the presenters said, well, you have to understand who that study was done with. There's nothing Mm -hmm. like people like you. Uh, so it's just interesting to me. So the study that I wanted to talk to you about of yours, one of them, uh, is the now quite famous one in, in meditation circles about mindfulness training, bringing forth compassion and, Mm -hmm. the." response of the people in the waiting room of the lab and who stood up to offer Mm -hmm. their chair. So maybe you can describe that study and then I'll I'll, I'll ask you a twist.
0: Yeah, sure. So, you know, we, uh, this was work that that was started by uh, a grad student at the time in my lab named Paul Condon, um, who's now a professor at uh, at, uh, Southern Oregon University. Um, And then we've taken it up with other people since then. But we were interested, you know, for a long time, just by I think historical happenstance in the sciences, the people who began to study meditation were cognitive neuroscientists. And so they were interested in, you know, how does meditation affect uh, your memory? How does it affect white matter versus gray matter in the brain? All of these things. And, and that's great. But at least my understanding, and Sharon, feel free to correct me if, I, if I'm wrong, is that the reason meditation was created was to help reduce suffering in the world. Yeah, and, and, right. and part of that, right, is to increase people's ethical behavior and, and compassion. And the lamas that I've talked to said, yes, it will do these things for memory and these other things, but those are all just kind of ancillary along the way and they can be helpful, but that's not the goal. And so no one had looked at the social outcomes before. And so we decided this is what we wanted to do. And so we designed a study where we would bring people into the lab, people who had never meditated before. And we recruited them out of the local Boston area. And they were either put on a wait list or they took part in the study. Um, and uh, it was led by Lama Willem Will- Miller, uh, who was doing the teachings at the time. And uh, they did uh, meditation for eight weeks, coming once a week uh, to be trained in in a in a sacred space, we had uh, that Northeastern has for that's multi denominational, and she created daily MP3 practice sessions for them at home, um, versus people who were on a wait list. And we told them after eight weeks, come to our lab. We want to measure your memory and other things. That that wasn't really true. Um, the experiment <laughs> took it took place in the waiting room, and the way it was designed was as follows. Um, we had. Uh, Two people, two actors who worked for us, and they would be sitting in this waiting room where there were three chairs. Uh, Then the real person from our study, a person who had meditated for eight weeks or not, would enter, and of course, there was one chair left. They would sit down in in the third chair. About two minutes later, another actor who worked for us would come into the waiting room, and this person kind of walked down the hall, and she was on crutches wearing one of those ankle boots you wear kind of when your foot is broken, and she was wincing in pain. She wasn't really in pain. This was just part of the act. She would come in, uh, the actors who worked for us who were already in their chairs were trained to avoid her. So they would turn their eyes away from her. They would thumb their phones, you know, basically ignoring her like you do on the subway when there's somebody who needs your seat you don't want to give it to, which happens all the time, at least on the Boston tea. Um, And what we wanted to see is, is what would the person who had meditated or not do? And what we found... I mean, we were hoping that meditation would increase people's awareness of suffering and willingness to relieve it in others. But the effect was huge. It went from about 16% of the people who um, didn't meditate were willing to get up and give their seat to this person. It was about 50% among those who had meditated, which is basically a tripling of the rate. Uh, and we took that as a sign that, you know, this this simple practice attuned people to want to relieve the suffering of others, even in the face of others, ignoring this person, which I think is is an important thing in life. I mean, we've all had this experience. I've done it too. I've, I've walked past homeless people who, who, you know, needed assistance because everybody else was doing it. And you become kind of accustomed to this. Well, the practice broke these people out of that and were willing to give their seat to this person. And, you know, we, we replicated this again a second time to make sure that it, it was a real effect, um, and it was. We've got a new study, which I'm happy to tell you about later, where we actually show that uh, it at meditation actually reduces your willingness to kind of seek seek vengeance or, or, or lash out mm-hmm. at who, who have... Insulted you, and so we're trying to get funding to replicate this on Twitter because (laughs) that's very insulting, actually. Um, But I can tell you about that. But 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 that that was the study, and so and so what we what we feel comfortable in saying is that you know meditation actually is increasing people's compassionate responses, and there's been lots of other work by other labs using similar paradigms that we believe this is 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 a true and robust effect. But but tell me your twist.
2: Yes, so. because I've been teaching for so many years, you know, I have seen so much of what you just described, the, the good heartedness, the, um, the growth in caring and just coming, you know, not because you're trying to assume a new persona or, you know, giving yourself a lecture when you see that homeless person, but there's something that shifts inside of you and it's just a, becomes a more natural response. And I've had so many people say to me, you know, I've, Say I've always given that person on the street a dollar because that's my habit. This is the first time I looked them in the eye and saw that they were a human being too. Mm -hmm. But what that person doesn't necessarily do without almost another kind of training is ask what is the housing policy in the city Mm -hmm. so that there's so many people on the street. It's like we don't necessarily look for causes and conditions. We don't necessarily look for the system that is driving a, a problem, so what i've I said for a long time now with your study is both you know so grateful that you you found that that you did it, and that you um and that you know people really did demonstrate what i've seen so many times just in in life you know and and uh you you showed it in a much more rigorous kind of testing environment, but my question is uh did anybody ask why the lab had so few chairs in their waiting room? <laughs> like, um, did, did anybody ask how is the lab using their resources? No, I, I, okay. I, they, didn't. they didn't. Although, you know, um that's a good question.
0: No, they didn't. Um uh, I think they probably assumed it was, you know, most <laughs> Our lab isn't in the fancy in the, in the fancy place. <laughs> it's kind of a typical college, you know, not not well furnished place. Um, so no, they didn't. But but that well, would so be that's interesting. A
2: corollary in my mind to somebody saying, well, "What's the housing policy?"
0: Yeah, no, mm-hmm. I, I, I think what it does is, is it makes you more aware and makes you think more deeply about these. And so it would be interesting and for us. And, and you know, we haven't done that, but that makes me think about doing. You know, following up on these people once they're back in their normal environments what what does it do? How does it how does it change how they're thinking about things? Um yeah, that's a good question.
2: You know, I actually I do think about it a lot as well. I've I've spoken about this a lot, uh referencing your study. But um because as a teacher, I'm wondering uh is there something else that can be offered along with the, the methods that um will I know I'm very confident produce uh, that kind of good heartedness, you know, and that, that sense of response is there something else, some contextualization there as well. You know, look at the system, look for causes and conditions. I would say yes, but let
0: me, let me tell you about a different study that is on compassion, but not meditation, but makes that point. And then I think we can meld those two together. So one of the other things we, we study, um, a student of mine named Dan Lim, is now a professor at, at Adelphi University, um, is interested in, in what happens when people experience adversity in life. And unfortunately, we are living through a large scale experiment of that right mm-hmm. now. Um, does it harden your heart or does it warm your heart? And, and what he has found repeatedly is that when you experience adversity, not everyone, there, there is heterogeneity in this, and it depends on the degree of adversity you experience. But in general, if you've had some life adversity and you've come through that, it tends to make people more compassionate. Um, and what he's found is, uh, so there's this thing called compassion fade or compassion fatigue, which is common, especially among healthcare workers, but among a lot of people as well. And the phenomenon basically is um when we feel there are more people, the scale of a tragedy is growing. We tend to feel paralyzed by it. right? We will tend to turn away, oh, I can't do anything about mass suffering. right? So people will give a lot of money to one child who's fallen down a well. Uh, Paul Bloom makes this point in his wonderful book, um, Against Empathy. Uh, but they won't do anything to people who are suffering floods or earthquakes or whatever it might be because the scale just seems so large. Or people who are uh, physicians will tend to stop turning down the compassion they feel because they're constantly feeling like uh, it's wearing them down. And we can talk about this later, about the difference between empathy and, and, and compassion. But if mm-hmm. you're constantly feeling someone's pain, it can, be, it can wear you down. And what Dan found is that people who have faced adversity in life, not only do they tend to feel more compassion and behave more compassionately toward others, but they're they're resistant to this bias. That is, they don't dial down their compassion when there are more people suffering. And and what he found is the reason why is they feel more empowered to do something about it because they, in their own experience of adversity, realize that even small acts of kindness from other people – can be meaningful, and when aggregated, can make a big, a big difference. And so, you know, our, our, what we're saying from the study is, is, we don't want to make people more compassionate by making them suffer first. That's not the, the goal, but it's to take the wisdom of those who have suffered. That is, even small acts can be meaningful, uh, and to use that. And so, I think to translate this back into the question you were asking me is if most of us don't want to exert effort if we believe that it's not going to lead to anything, right? Why do I want to bang my head against the wall or give lots of money if I believe it's not going to help? If you can evoke the compassionate instinct in people, the feeling, right, by that meditation normally does, but then provide them roots, uh, avenues to which or by which they can feel that energy they exert can be meaningful, then I think you'll see the same thing. So I think people who feel compassion for meditation might want to fight systemic
1: racism mm-hmm.
0: or economic inequality, but they might not immediately know the best avenue by which to do that. And so if as teachers, we can also, as part of this, give the context for here's a way that you can actually leverage that that compassion you're feeling um, in, a, in, a, in the most beneficial way, then I would suspect that, that, that we would find they would do that.
2: You just solved one of my most persevering, really, uh, difficulties. And I I never do this, but I'm going to listen to this podcast again and again so that I really um, can get down what you just said. Because it's very important to me, you know, that uh, I think it happens in several ways. One is, you know, people may not also be in touch with their own suffering. And so you don't want to induce more suffering so that they can have but they may actually be well-served by being more in touch with the suffering that they have gone through and that they are carrying in some way. Mm -hmm. But uh, even more than that um, is that, I don't know if you call it extra training or contextualization or opening the possibility. Um, I mean, I have been saying that very thing so many times. Even a small action is enough. Like, Look Mm -hmm. at where we are. You know, it's not nothing that you're calling your neighbor to make sure they're okay. You know, there are people alone are people struggling, you know, you can do a small thing. It counts. Mm -hmm. In this,
0: in this work that Dan did, one of the things we did to to prove this effect was we took people who had not faced adversity and we, and we confronted them with, with, I think we were using examples of children suffering um, from the civil war conflict in Darfur. Uh, Sometimes we use Red Cross. Um, And what we've, told people is, who hadn't faced adversity is we told them, you know, if you're, if you're willing to do X, Y, and Z, um, that will be meaningful, that will matter. And these folks suddenly behaved like people who had suffered adversity because they felt that they, they could make a difference. Whereas those who have been in, in dire straits, whether it's losing someone you care about to illness, whether it's being in hard economic conditions or the victim of, of natural disasters, you, unfortunately, by being in those situations and having that suffering, realize how, what small acts could mean to you. Um, and I think empowering people in that way is helpful. I mean, th- it doesn't come naturally, right? So when we when we meditate and we feel the compassion that comes from that face-to-face, person-to-person, we know how to help someone. But, you know, human, the human mind didn't evolve in, a, in an environment where it can think about large-scale issues across economic conditions or across the globe, those things don't normally evoke the same response in us and we don't normally know how to deal with them. And so we have the the compassionate desire to help. But unless we feel we have a way that it's meaningful to act, we're going to do one of two things. We're either not going to act on it or we're going to pick some way that may not be the most optimal way of acting on it. And so I think your point is exactly right to the extent that we can equip people with a channel for that motive to flow through, um, that should be enormously
2: helpful. All right. Thank you. So tell me about the vengeance. Study. Oh yeah, the vengeance. Study. So um, I think you, well, actually
0: you, you can tell me there's, I, people have told me that one of the uh, important kind of views of, of Buddhist teaching is, is this idea of, of equanimity in the sense that mm-hmm friends can be enemies, enemies can be friends. We should all, you know, all human beings are interconnected and, and equally to be valued. Mm-hmm. We decided that if we really wanted to put this idea of meditation, um, increasing compassion to the test, and I, I don't want to just show that it will help you, you know, be willing to help strangers. What will it do to people who you consider enemies, right? People who, who, who would normally evoke your desire to punish or to seek vengeance upon. And so we adapted this paradigm from uh, Tom Denson, sorry, who's a uh, psychologist in, uh, in the University of New South Wales, Australia, who studies anger and aggression. And he developed this paradigm where uh, people come in, and again, we use actors, and we tell each of them, so one person is a real subject to either meditate it or not over several weeks and one person. an actor. We tell them, okay, we're interested in in how people present, write and present speeches to one another. So would you please take 10 minutes each and write a short speech about what your life goals are and how you're pursuing them? And so they would do this. And then the uh, real subject would go first and he or she would deliver his speech about life goals and how he or she is pursuing them. And the actor was trained to be very dismissive. Uh, and so Tom developed this. And, and um, what would usually happen is, you know, the actor would kind of look at them askance and say, you know, really? That's your plan? <laughs> Does it doesn't make any sense. And be very condescending in saying why a few things that the person said didn't make sense. And what Tom has shown is that not only do people report being angry when, when this happens to them, he's taken physiological measures. So their blood pressure goes up, their heart rate goes right. So he knows they're angry. And then when you when you give them the opportunity to punish people, of course, which never really happens, but they believe they can give them shock or they can make them ingest something that's going to be aversive, um, they do it. And so in our study, we we used this paradigm, but we had, um, again, the people who came in either had meditated or not. And the they were given the opportunity after the person insulted them, um, they were creating taste samples for these people, uh, which would be, imagine little, little um, condiment cups. And we told them the next part is a perception study. We're interested in how well people can taste these things. Um, You've been randomly chosen to, to create the spicy sample. And so they had this evil bottle of hot sauce. that looked incredible. (laughs) It had warnings on it, how hot it was. Whatever you put in this cup will be Placed in the other person's mouth. We didn't develop this. This has been a paradigm used in the aggression literature for a long time because it's intentional, right? You know, the more you put in there, the more pain you're going to cause this person. Mm-hmm. And so, normally, people put about a gram in there because they know they have to create something. Um, when they were angry uh, before being insulted, they put in like almost seven grams. I mean, I mean, it, it was a huge amount. They wanted at least people who didn't meditate. Uh, the people who meditated put in the same amount as people normally do when they're not angry at all, about a gram or two. Um, and when we asked them later why, you know, what happened, they said, "Well, it's not that that I agree with what he said, and it's not that what he said was right. And I would really like to be able to talk to him and tell him why this bothered me and why this isn't the right thing to do, but I didn't want to cause him pain." And to me, that's the insight here, right? So it's not that meditation, the compassion you feel is making you a doormat. It's not that you're saying, yes, please do whatever to me or somebody else that, that you want to do. It's that I don't believe the way to solve this problem is by acting out in a vengeful way and by causing you pain. I want to talk to you about it. I'd like to correct that behavior. But pain is not the way to do it, which to us was a, was a a, a huge insight, and you know. Also, we have other work on gratitude, where, where gratitude does does a similar thing. It, people are 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 when they see um, other people act immorally, and they they usually feel grateful in life. They're more willing to call that other person out. Um, and so, to, to us, this was the insight: it doesn't make you a doormat; it just doesn't want to make you perpetuate the cycle of violence or, or or escalate it.
2: That's really fascinating. I wonder if part of that is. What I was referencing before is like you you tune in so much more to your own pain that mm-hmm. there's less of a desire to kind of distribute it on even for somebody who's behaved very badly
0: yeah, it may be i mean we we actually are interested to figure out exactly why this happens we don't know, and that seem to me seems quite reasonable
2: um, Well, what yeah. about the factor now i'm I'm really uh I'm going to study your study. Yeah. Um, um, it. Feel free to download it, yeah. Okay, well, uh, and I, I encourage everybody to. So, what about um, uh, what I've said very casually, uh-huh. for example, is that I feel like I am my own laboratory, you know, that uh, I can apply the lessons I see from looking at my own experience to others. So, I have seen. As many of us have, you know that when I act badly when i 'm reckless, when I'm careless, when I hurt somebody, it is coming from a place of pain in me, and that pain may not be acute, it could just be complete disconnection, which is painful um, and what I extrapolate from that is that someone else behaving badly uh, is also coming from a place of pain, even if they are not connected to it themselves mm-hmm. and and so that's part of a realm of understanding that feels very genuine to me. And, mm-hmm. and so I, I uh, wonder if that's also part of it is, is just a kind of recognition like, you know, you look at where you are. I was talking to somebody uh, the other day about um, – talking about eulogy virtues. I was talking about a particular political figure that they absolutely hated – Mm-hmm. And I said, can you imagine being a person where um, your terminal illness is announced and all these people rejoice, mm-hmm. you know, that you have lived your life in such a way that this is the consequence? Um, that is worthy of a lot of compassion. Yeah. Uh, but compassion doesn't mean you don't fight, you know, it means you're not really embroiled in a kind of hatred. Right right
0: yeah i that makes sense to me one of the things and and i you know actually i should ask you this question um a student of mine told me that there's this idea in among some buddhist teachers where they talk about compassion at, there's true compassion and there's idiot compassion <laughs> have you heard that term
2: yeah it's Tibetan it's yeah. or true paramita yeah.
0: yeah right and the idea is 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 sometimes um you have to recognize that people are suffering and help them through that suffering, even if in the moment that could be painful for them, versus but in the long term it will help and 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 bring them and bring them mm-hmm. peace. And so the wisdom of compassion isn't always just make somebody feel good in the moment,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, because that's not, you know, in their in their highest and greatest good ultimately. Uh, so I think there is that understanding that must come. I, I wish we had asked our subjects more questions in that study. We didn't, but it's something that I think we'll have to explore in the next in the next round of that.
2: No, I think it's fantastic. I mean, the way um, uh, the Burmese Buddhist uh, perspective might describe it is that compassion or loving kindness form and they reform the intentional base from which we tend to act. Mm-hmm. So if we have largely been motivated by fear, for example, in what we do or what we say or what we hold back from doing or saying, when we cultivate these qualities, then we will largely be coming from a place of connection in yeah. our worldview and our motivation. But what we decide to do is also very contextual. It, it's our That's where wisdom comes in or discernment. Mm-hmm. You know, it may be that in a particular moment in time, a particular relationship, a particular context, your best guess of the most skillful way to behave is saying no, having Mm -hmm. a strong boundary, being fierce, being intense. But that doesn't mean your motivation is not compassionate. Mm -hmm. And if you, you know, when people kind of fuse those two, then we're in trouble. Those are the times when people say to me, I don't know about developing some loving kindness, then I I can only be stupid, you know, and sort of meek and smile and, you know, things like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, I think that's right. That's that's where the wisdom of it of it comes in. That's where you have to think about. Yeah, I think you're right. The, the contextualization of the of the emotion. I, I I always call it the wisdom part of emotional intelligence. But is how do I use this to achieve the appropriate goal in this given context? And that mm-hmm. that means it's not always expressed in the same way. There's not, you know, compassion isn't always expressed in the same way. Just like, you know, fear isn't always expressed in the same way.
2: Yeah. So in one of your books, Emotional Success, you focus on perseverance. And that's mm-hmm. been a really interesting topic that's come up as I've, I've talked to different activists or people just trying to make a difference in their communities and their families in the world. And how do you persevere while fighting against what's conventional or or taken for granted or against the status quo. Mm-hmm. Um, I had uh, an interview recently on this podcast with a friend, Mark Solomon, who had worked for 15 years on the Marriage Equality Act before it eventually passed. It felt like a staggeringly long time to maintain vision and inspiration. And what are your thoughts about perseverance?
0: Yeah, the whole reason... I wrote that book is because I thought the way we as a society approached the idea of perseverance was wasn't quite well rounded enough so if you think about perseverance, people usually think about this this trait called grit right, which is my ability to to persevere against difficulty and to work hard and it's often talked about in terms of studying or practicing an instrument or you know building a successful startup or you know even pursuing pursuing a certain policy like the marriage equality act. And people tend to think of it as this, this strictly kind of cognitive skill. Like I'm just going to work really hard and use my willpower to focus everything. But if you really think about it, when I think about what makes people do hard things, yeah, it can be because we think we should, but I think in some ways it's really, we do the hardest things in life because we feel we should, right? Emotions give us incredible energy. So when I think about grit, I don't think about the violin prodigies, you know, playing 10 hours a day practicing. I think about, you know, the single mom who's working two jobs to put her kids through college. I think about the grandfather who has emphysema, who's dragging the oxygen tank behind him to make sure he's going to be there for his granddaughter's first, you know, theatrical performance, right, in in high school. Um, Things that are hard to do, but we do them because we we, we love people, we care about things. And so in this book, what I've done is looked at emotions like gratitude, compassion, and, and pride, not arrogant, hebristic pride, pride in the sense that I'm earning something, I'm doing something that's making a difference. And, and what we find is that those emotions make people willing to persevere toward their goals in a way that is much less stressful. So if you're always relying on willpower, you're always basically fighting an impulse inside of wanting to give up, saying, why am I doing this? It's, it's never going to matter to anything. It's never going to come to fruition, but I should do it. And your body's always in this state of tension. But if you cultivate emotions like gratitude or compassion or pride, and there are data to show this, um, we tend to value long-term goals more than immediate gratification. We tend to persevere. When I feel grateful to somebody, I will do a lot to help, to help, to pay them back. When I feel compassion, I'll give people time, money, a shoulder to cry on to help them. When I feel proud about what I'm accomplishing, I will work hard. And so people like your friend Mark, um, the the long-term goal, if you're always focusing on the end result, is difficult. But if you focus on little achievements along the way, and take pride in those small achievements along the way. Feel gratitude for the people who are helping you do that. Feel compassion for the people who will be helped by the goal you're trying to achieve. Those emotions will alter your brain's assessment of how valuable that end goal is, and will kind of buttress you in the stress response that you're getting and trying to to persevere toward those ends. And so... My argument is, yeah, you know you can approach your goals and perseverance by willpower, but if you cultivate these emotional traits, they will give you more resilience along the way. they'll be healing to your body as opposed to stressful to your body along the way to achieve those goals
2: That's really fantastic it actually reminds me of a, a, another chapter in my book uh, about taking in the joy, which most people uh, could. Easily feel, especially if you're engaged in, you could say, the front lines of, of facing suffering. You feel it's like a waste of time. It's self indulgent. It's mm-hmm. laziness. It's it's being conflict avoidant and uh, just perpetuating the pattern of, of refusing to look at pain. But really, we need to restore somehow. You know, mm-hmm. like what is resiliency made of? Uh, you know, it is. It's got some energy in it, and it has to have some. I guess, brightness in it too. Mm-hmm. And uh, being able to orient toward accepting the need um, to also maybe practice gratitude or take in the good uh, is, I think, a big ingredient in what's going to help us keep going. It is. It's healing to your body, but it's also
0: it also makes you more resilient in the sense that if you experience these emotions more regularly, gratitude, compassion, It just makes, it draws other people to you. There are, you know, data to show this. And the simple fact of drawing other people to you, reinforcing your social relationships when you are pursuing something doggedly, right? Those people, those relationships are there when those inevitable bumps along the road happen uh, and they sustain us uh, and I think give you added resilience uh, along the way. And I think that's, you know, I always, getting back to our, our discussion about eulogy virtues and resume virtues. It's really only because of the way we live now that those two things are separate. For most of human history, they were the same. The way that you succeeded in life was by having good character, was by being honest, being fair, being kind so that other people would cooperate with you. Now, you know, you can live in such a way that if you have enough money or enough of any one type of skill, you can kind of function on your own and pay people to take care of the other needs mm-hmm. uh, that you have. And so they're artificially separated. But the problem is that leads to, I think, a lot of pain and, and, and dissatisfaction. And I think, you know, as you're saying, it's, it's, it's time for us to, I think, think about the way we are, we are structuring our lives and defining success.
2: You spent a lot of time um, examining character in your book, Out of Character, the surprising truths about the liar, cheat, sinner, and saint lurking in all of us. So uh, that's a fascinating subtitle. Yeah. Um, and isn't it
0: true, really? Yeah. I mean, you know, we all, so what's what's evolutionarily adaptive for you isn't what is always virtuous and so mm-hmm. it, this is what bothers me when people like sam harris say that you know science can can tell us what's virtuous no no science can't science can tell us what's adaptive science cannot tell us i mean it can tell us what types of behavior in the long run are, are, are tend to lead to greater success or not but there are lots of questions that science can't answer in terms of of virtue um and so, you know, my job in writing that book was to tell you, here's how your mind works. Here's why you can surprise yourself with sometimes being more virtuous than you would suspect or sometimes not. Uh, and it's by knowing that, that you can begin to change your behavior. So, you know, one, one example we talk about, and I think that is, I think timely now is the issue of, of prejudice and, and discrimination. Um people. People come to holding biases based on race or, or religion or ethnicity uh, in different ways. One which I think is is the less frequent one is, is what we call kind of the explicit route to prejudice, which is where you learn growing up by parents or people you care about or friends that, you know, members of group X or Y are just bad people or have bad traits. And so, you know, you're taught that and you internalize that as a child. But I think that's the less frequent way. I think the more frequent way that people tend to have these biases is through what we call more more implicit measures um, that we have. Our brain kind of learns these responses that are latent in us unless we're vigilant for them. Those happen in two ways. One is kind of the the garbage in, garbage out method of the media. And the reason I say that is, um, you know, our brains are always taking in statistical pairings of things. That's how we learn what's going on in our environment. And if you live in an environment Where nine out of 10 times you come into contact with people of group X and those people try to harm you, then it can make some sense to be wary of those people. But what most of us see now is what's fed to us by the media. So when I was, you know, I'm Italian by ancestry growing up in in America, people in my family would always say, Why do they always think we're in the mob, right? (laughs) Why do they always think we're in the mafia? And I would say, Well, because if you look at the news or look at the movies, you know that's what they're seeing, right? The news doesn't show you the ninety-nine out of one hundred Italian families who go home every night and have a just a wonderful American life. They don't, you know, they sensationalize the things that are that are that are problematic. And to most people, that's what they see. And so, if you're not living in an area where you're coming into contact with lots of different people, what you what your brain sees is what's fed to you by the news, what is curated to you normally to be very sensational. And so, you get a bad. Uh, uh, an untrue version of what's going on in the world. But the brain is, and I don't think this is the best word to use, but it's the word that people use, tribal, so I'll I'll, I'll use it, in the sense that if you have to make a snap decision about who you should trust more or who's more of a danger, your brain is going to rely on the simple rubric of who's in my group, right? People who are in your group are more likely to be around to pay you back if you help them out. You're more likely to have similar goals. And so whenever there's a sense of kind of danger in the environment, your brain will at a very gut level be more wary of people who are of different groups. And we show this in in work I talked about in this book that When you feel negative emotions, it exacerbates that. So when you feel fear, when you feel anger, when you feel distress, it will tip your brain's calculations to be more wary of people who are in different groups because if your brain is sensing hostility or danger in the environment, who's a bet it's more likely to come from? Probably somebody from a different group. That's the way we're wired because evolutionarily that's the way it makes sense. And you can't change that wiring but what you can do is beat the brain at its own game, right? What you can do is by understanding how it works, change the system. So a lot of us are multi-categorizable, right? You can think of me as a professor, or as I was raised Catholic, or as Italian, or as you live in my town, as the guy in your town. And so I think the trick for us becomes to look for the commonalities, to look for the fact of what we share in common with people, to begin to group people as we're all human, that's the category I'm going to use, as opposed to categories based on religion, race, or ethnicity. And if you train your brain to categorize people in an inclusive way, using an inclusive label, then when it sees them and when those negative emotions and stress arises, it's going to categorize them as people that are on your team. And this is, you know, one of the other things, one of the other ways I think our work on meditation and compassion works, and Sharon, I'd be interested in your view on this, is I think it begins to make people see the linkages between people. And once I see that you and I are the same, there's some connection, then you're within my moral circle. Then you're part of my tribe or my people. And then those normal mechanisms that the brain becomes wary of people who, who are other uh, you beat the brain at its own at its own game, so i'd be interested to see what you think about that
2: yeah, I mean I think it's very very true and and it's why sometimes we talk about compassion as um compassion is the, an emergent property of how we pay attention mm. because if we're um immediately uh acting on an assumption well that person's this or that person's that or mm-hmm. that kind of person uh doesn't love their children or whatever you know um and i say that because i i understand that a lot of um the efforts that are made between bringing people together and from disparate uh political vantage points or things like that tend to find the uniting point is the love of their children mm. even if nothing else but yeah you know when we just dismiss somebody and we're not actually listening we're not actually paying attention that we're not Creating the conditions for the sense of connection and understanding mm-hmm. to arise, which would be compassion. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's it's very true, and how we how we learn to pay attention and how we learn to see our own assumptions is very very critical.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't you know I don't know that much about loving kindness meditation, but from what I know, uh, one, of the, <laughs> one of the practices that that you do is you train yourself to be willing to wish and extend happiness and love to other people, ultimately mm-hmm. including people who you would normally categorize as not your friends. or, mm-hmm. or as mm-hmm. friends. And so by training your brain in that context, then I, I think what it does is fights the normal tendency that we're fed with to break down along obvious, you know, mm-hmm. um, categories of of race, religion, or ethnicity. And if we do that, then then we retrain the mechanisms that our brain works at below the conscious radar. And that's that's what's fascinating, right? We're not, we're not born knowing that there is such a thing as race or knowing that there's such a thing as religion. We're born willing to categorize people because that's how we can optimize our choices in the world. Um, but what those categories are that we choose to let our brain use are up to us and we can change them and curate them. And so I think that's why understanding how the brain works is really important. And that's what always fascinates me when I look back about, you know, at, at the Buddhist psychology, I'm like, wait a minute, you kind of knew that. Yeah, that's <laughs> amazing. Yeah. <yeah>, I'm really <laughs> that. that in a different way, but I think that's, you know, that's why the Buddhist toolbox in some ways is, is, is really beneficial to some of these things, because unlike a lot of other religions, it's, it actually has its own uh, psychology of sorts,
2: well, one of the ways loving kindness practice works, I think, is is really uh, just through what you're describing, and we actually notice, fully notice, someone else. I had this really interesting experience not long ago where I was um, asked by this journal to to record, you know, sort of read out loud one of the guided meditations in the book, Real Change, and and I have a loving kindness meditation in there, which is what they chose, which is loving kindness for a neutral person. So a neutral person is somebody we don't especially like or dislike. Mm -hmm. We just feel kind of indifferent to them, the kind of person we usually look right through instead of look at. And the recommendation is to choose someone in your life that you tend to run into now and then Mm -hmm. because you may not feel any great shakes when you're actually formally meditating, but when you see them again, Mm -hmm. that's where you'll notice the difference. And so probably for 45 years, my colleagues and I have been saying, Like the checkout person in the supermarket, that's the perfect person. Mm -hmm. We're totally indifferent. We don't care about them at all, usually. Mm -hmm. We look right through them. We objectify them. So I was reading this meditation out loud, and I thought, whoops, look at that. You know, uh, these are the people, especially now, you know, Mm -hmm. calling them essential workers. We think, how do I get a meal? You know, Mm -hmm. how do I get food? Um, Look at the risks they're taking. Look at them uh, working because they have no choice often. And, uh, you know, it was such a startling reminder of how our attention is usually parsed in some way, you know, mm-hmm. and, and how powerful it can be to learn to expand and include that force of attention. So I have one more question for you. Yeah, um, sure. Uh, since I know from Twitter, which is my source of everything you know, <laughs> except for Buddhism, uh, so that you just turned in the first draft of your new book. So congratulations. Thank you. How God Works. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's not a controversial title, yeah. No, really. It's very exciting. And Could you please explain that also? Uh, and when is it coming out?
0: Yeah, um, the goal is for it to come out uh, fall of 2021. Um, and so the, the, the working subtitle, I don't know if this will be the ultimate subtitle or the final subtitle, but is, is uh, How God Works, A Scientist's Guide to What Religion Already Knew. And this comes out of a piece I wrote for the New York Times um, earlier in the year, or last year. Um, and the idea is, uh, it, it's kind of a, a pushback against the new atheists these days in the sense that, you know, science and religion have always been at loggerheads, sometimes more than others. And I, I think right now they're truly out of loggerheads. And uh, the idea behind it is we're not going to learn about the nature of the cosmos or the biology of disease from religion. But if you want to understand how to move people's hearts and minds, how to help them along the path of life, dealing with challenges, then I think it's kind of Hubristic for social scientists like myself to assume that all of religion is folly. You know, now when people have problems in life, they go to the self help, you know, shelves or they come to psychologists, but for millennia, they would look to religious leaders. And what we found in a lot of our work on meditation and other things is that a lot of what we're finding about how to help people deal with stresses in their lives, how to be more moral, how to have more well-being, how to deal with grief. A lot of religious rituals already leverage these aspects of the mind. And so my argument is just like you know, pharmaceutical companies will go and bioprospect. They'll go to the rainforest and look for traditional remedies, and then they'll come and test them. And sure, a lot of them don't work, but some do. And that's how we've found many a drug that is used now to to heal many diseases, I think we should religio-prospect. That is, not give up scientific epistemology at all, but be open to looking at rituals and practices, things in the religious toolbox, things that, that Krista Tippett, when I talked to her about this, called spiritual technologies, to see how they can help people. And so the book is arrayed along the challenges, the road of life from birth to death, the challenges that people face at at different points. And it looks at the convergence of different religions and how they have rituals and practices that help people meet these challenges. And also, do some do it better than others? Looking at it from a scientific viewpoint that is looking at the mechanisms these rituals use and what do we know scientifically about them and what might we not know and where should we look to go forward. And what I hope it does this fosters a discussion between religious leaders and scientists to kind of move us into a more fruitful discussion of of, of helping each other uh, foster foster well being. Uh, and so, um, I hope for people, it will be a way for you to not only think about, hmm, so that's why I say this prayer in that way, or that's why this ritual does that, or, but also even if you're a non believer. Uh, how can I incorporate some of these practices in ways? How can I take elements of sitting shiva, the Jewish, you know, uh, grieving ritual, uh, to help me deal with the grief that I'm feeling, even separate from theology? Uh, and so, you know, I say we're not going to argue about theology. We're not going to talk about does God exist. That's not a question that science can ever answer. But what I can tell you is here and why these different practices that religions use make your life better help you heal anxiety, depression, uh, even physical illness, help you overcome grief. And I think we need to be open to having that discussion.
2: It's so beautiful. I hope the Dalai Lama gets an early copy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send it to him. I love a blurb. But yeah,
0: I know. But yeah, we'll send it to him, of course, uh, and to lots of other people. I mean, yeah, he's, he's somebody I point out because he funds a lot of, yeah. he funds a lot of scientific research in this vein, yeah. exactly.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for joining me today. I hope it's the beginning of many conversations we can have. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just been tremendous and I've learned a lot and I'm very excited about, uh, really diving deeper into all of your work and thank you for your work.
0: Well, thank you. And thank you for having me on. And and you know, I I hope this leads to many more discussions and even possible collaborations down the line. So Oh, so I was going to offer. I'm sorry.
2: Yeah. But don't say that. But I really want to say that. You know, if uh you ever want to uh collaborate about anything and certainly loving kindness, that would mm-hmm. be that would be really uh my honor. It would be so great to do. Thank you. Okay, so to learn more about David's work, you can visit dave. Desteno—that's d a v that's d-a-v-e-d-e-s-t-e-n-o dot com thank you all for listening this has been the real change series on the meta hour podcast from the be here now network may you be safe be happy be healthy and may you live with ease hey folks thanks for listening Real Change is available September 1st in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats. Learn more at realchangebook.com.